Section 12 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Second Decade, Chapter 1, The First Invasion of France, Part 2. Again and again did the Pope write to Edward, warning him against uniting himself with Louis, neither king nor emperor, whom he accused in the forcible feeble Latin of papal bulls of favoring detestable heresies and horrible horrors, and usurping the title of emperor with detestable temerity. Once more ambassadors were sent at the eleventh hour to treat for peace with Philip our cousin. Nothing, however, came of these overtures, for shortly afterwards we find the English king signing an agreement with the dukes of Styria and Carinthia for the hire of two hundred men-at-arms to fight with Philip, calling himself King of France. And at length, after many delays caused by the vacillations of Philip and the Duke of Brabant, Edward, as vicar of the empire, summoned all his allies to meet him by a certain day at Mechlin. This time his citation was promptly obeyed, for thither came the shifty Duke of Brabant himself, and all the rest with the Margrave of Brandenburg, the last being the son of the emperor, whom that potentate had sent with one hundred lances as his representative. The arrival of this prince must have been an agreeable surprise to the English sovereign, for Philip had dispatched John, king of Bohemia, who afterwards fell at Crecy, as his emissary to the emperor, and had persuaded him to return Edward's money on the ground that it was unworthy of his imperial position to be in the pay of another power. And now Edward, in September 1339, having first, according to feudal custom, formally defied King Philip, opened the campaign by marching upon Cambrai with an army of some 40,000 men. The city was strong and well defended, and the Allies, seeing little progress made and the winter approaching, resolved, under the advice of Artois, to raise the siege and invade the kingdom of France. When the army reached the banks of the Scheldt, the boundary of the empire, the counts of Hainaut and Namur, who had joined the army on its march, fell back, declaring that the authority of the imperial vicar expired the moment he set foot on the territory of the French king, for whom, as their feudal chief, they must henceforth fight if they fought at all. Edward, too deeply imbued with the spirit of feudal chivalry to show any resentment at this desertion, dismissed his punctilious allies with thanks for past services and advancing into France, ravaged and burnt the country seventy-two leagues wide from Bapaume to Saint-Quentin. When Philip heard that the invader had entered France, he marched to meet him, supported on his side by the kings of Bohemia and Scotland, the king consort of Navarre, and a great array of princes and nobles as far as Vironfosse, where he took up his position. Thither a herald was sent from Edward's camp to demand a battle, and on the morning of the day appointed, both kings heard mass each among his own people at his own quarters, and many took the sacrament and confessed themselves. Edward then marshaled his forces on foot, and, as afterwards at Crecy, in three divisions with the archers and Welsh lancers in front of the men-at-arms, and mounting his palfrey, rode from battle to battle, recommending to his troops the care of his honor. Philip also drew up his forces, 
and in such brilliant array that the chronicler Foissat breaks out into rapturous admiration of the sight of the army ready for the combat. But Vironfus was not destined to be one of the world's famous battlefields, for at the last moment, apparently, an appeal was made to Philip's reason and another to his superstition, which induced him to decline an engagement and march his troops away to Paris. His counsel represented to him that the lateness of the season would soon compel the English to retire, and it was in his own power, by declining battle, to render the invasion fruitless without having to strike a blow. At the same time, letters were brought him from Robert, Count of Provence and King of Sicily, who had the reputation of a consummate astrologer, prognosticating certain defeat if he ever encountered the King of England in person on the field. In a very interesting extant letter describing this campaign to his son at home, Edward says that on the day after that fixed for the battle, Philip had taken up a stronger position, and so hastily that one thousand of his horsemen had sunk in a marsh, and that on the day following, the allies ascertaining that the French were in retreat, declared that they would stay no longer. He had then no choice but to retire upon Brussels, and if possible find means for defraying the enormous debt incurred by this altogether unprofitable expedition. Some idea of the cost of campaigning in these days may be gathered from an account which has been preserved of the expenses of the army before Calais a few years later. From this it appears that bishops and earls received six shillings eight pence a day, barons four shillings, knights two shillings, and guides and esquires one shilling. Mounted archers and hobblers, or irregular light cavalry, were paid six pence a day, bowmen on foot three pence, Welshmen tuppence. For another expedition like the present a few years later, there were ordered seventy-three hundred bows, 349,200 arrows, 2,000 separate heads for arrows, 50 dozen spare cords for the bows, painted bows were worth one shilling sixpence each, white bows twelve pence, the sheath of 24 arrows twelve pence, and the arrow heads were twelve a penny, which prices may be multiplied by fifteen if we wish to compare them with those of the present day. While his army lay before Cambrai, Edward had written to Archbishop Stratford and the Duke of Cornwall, authorizing them to receive fines, to grant pardons, to sell permission to marry the wards of the crown, and to raise money by all other expedients known under the feudal system. On his return to Brussels from the expedition, finding himself in great straits for money, he determined to sail for England to raise what was needful to pay his debts and to provide for a new campaign on which he had already resolved. Before starting, however, he formed under the advice of van Artevelde a new treaty, offensive and defensive with the Duke of Brabant, in which the chief cities of Flanders were included. The Flemings, by a separate instrument, agreed to recognize him as King of France, declaring war against that kingdom, and begin the new campaign in the spring with the siege of Tournay. He then, to satisfy the remaining scruples of the French Flemings, for the first time quartered the fleur-de-lis with the English leopards, adopting the motto, Dieu et mon droit. 
it must not pass unnoticed that on the very day on which the commissioners of the treaty with the Flemish cities were appointed, he again authorized ambassadors to treat with their exiled Count Louis for the marriage of his daughter with the heir of Flanders. And now once more Pope Benedict XII wrote to Edward endeavoring to persuade him to break off his alliance with the emperor and make peace with the king of France, urging that his Flemish and German friends were not to be trusted, that when it suited their purpose they would leave him to shift for himself and shuffle their burdens from off their own backs onto his, and even offering to go himself to negotiate personally with the English king. On receiving the Pope's letter, Edward again made friendly overtures to Philip. But suddenly, growing as weary as all readers of this history must be, of fruitless negotiations, he issued a proclamation from Ghent, which he ordered to be fixed to the doors of all Flemish churches in places bordering on France. In this document he again recited his claim to the French crown, which had been usurped by Philip of Valois, who, taking advantage of his tender years and ignorance of law, had extorted from him a homage prejudicial to his rights, and had further invaded his lands in Guienne, assisted his rebellious subjects in Scotland, and harassed his commerce in the narrow seas. He therefore proclaimed to all men that he revoked his homage and took upon himself the royal dignity of France, of which he was the rightful heir. This step of Edward's drew a final remonstrance from the Pope. End of section 12